Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL, and this is HFL number 140 with Adam Bodoni. This uh, interview is a follow-up to last week's interview with Susan Kitterman, uh, the founder of the New World Youth Orchestra, or what is now the Indianapolis Youth Orchestra. Adam is the successor to Susan Kitterman. Adam is the current music director of the Indianapolis Youth Orchestra and a wonderful musician slash conductor. I know sometimes those things don't always go together, but Adam is both, and he's also a trombone player. Go wherever you want to. With the, uh, There's a lot of jokes to be had there. Uh, anyways, before we get to uh, Adam's interview, of course, i got to tell you about the show sponsors. Messina Covers is not just any other case company. David Messina and Erica Howard design and produce some beautiful cases that fit both form and function. And you can choose your case design, fabric, and trim color, add custom engraving, and more. And of course, you can find out more at MessinaCovers.net. Peter Pickett and his crack team of craftspeople are continually innovating and providing the trumpet community with spectacular options for stock and custom mouthpieces. He and Eric Marine can help you find just the right size to fit your needs, and you should definitely consider trying the acrylic cup and rim. And if you're in the market for a custom trumpet, then Peter and Eric can build a Blackburn trumpet just for you. Check them out at picketblackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram. And you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe. My first experience with a Hammond design mouthpiece has turned into a bit of obsession. There is something very comfortable about playing one of Carl's mouthpieces. The comfort, response, and sound are part of the HD experience. Try one of the stock mouthpieces or have Carl make you a custom one. Either way, everything is better in HD, and you can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you are, I would love it if you would take just a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts to leave a star rating and a review. Doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. When I first tried an Eastman B-flat trumpet, I was blown away by both the playability and the sound. And the more I found out about the company and got to know the people, I knew that this was a company I wanted to have a relationship with. There is a drive for excellence in design and production of every instrument, not just the high-end products. And the proof of this is that the one and only Doc Severinsen helped to design the Eastman Beginner trumpet model. I still play that B-flat and have added a spectacular cornet and flugelhorn to my arsenal. You can find out more at eastmanwens.com. I'd love it if you'd visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And while you're there, you can also visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and as a gift for someone else. Of course, you can do that at studiohfl.com. My current situation with my C trumpet is a bit ridiculous. My Shire C, which Samantha Lane helped me trial and choose, is the most versatile C I've ever played. The same goes for the new Destino designed by Doc. This horn sizzles when I need it to sizzle and is as smooth as silk when I wear my sil- uh, never mind. Uh, anyway, the line of Shire's trumpets includes the Q series, which are production models, and the custom series. Either way you go, you'll love the sound you get, and you'll also experience exceptional customer service. Find out more at seshires.com. Here's how you can access exclusive content like the interview excerpts. 
I'd like to invite you to become a part of the Studio HFL community by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. You can help to financially support the show for as little as $36 a year. That's only $3 a month. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, a behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. You can join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on with the interview. Adam Bodoni, welcome to my podcast, Studio HFL. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. So... We've known each other uh, a little bit, but most recently uh, we had worked together, and I say recently, it's been a year, <laughs> with uh, Indianapolis, Indianapolis Ballet Orchestra and for the 2019 production of Nutcracker. Uh, and here we are almost in December of 2020, and it's like, uh, is there going to be a Nutcracker? But you just described uh, what's going to happen with, with that. Uh, yeah. Tell me again. Yeah. Yeah. I was just looking at the calendar now and I think we would have started rehearsals this week or something, you know, looking yeah. back to it a year ago. And it's strange to think that it was a year ago. I think, uh, you know, that lockdown of spring and summer just truncated everybody's time for a while. Um, I was keeping in touch with Vicki Lyris, the, the artistic director of the ballet, and they are putting on um, smaller shows of the ballet uh, at the Toby in early mid-December. Mm -hmm. I think they're gonna use a recording and just do some of the main dances, main scenes with a lesser amount of people. And um, I think tickets are still on sale, though I don't know if Marion County's new guidelines over the last couple of weeks have changed how many tickets they can sell. I'm, sell, I'm sure I'm sure it has. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm even thinking, okay, they're going to do a reduced version of Nutcracker. But even when we did the Nutcracker, wasn't that a reduced orchestra? It was, yeah. Um, there's actually an arrangement, and I forget, it might have been Clark McAllister, I, I forget, but there's an arrangement right. from, from large to medium orchestra. Mm -hmm. Now, was that your first time conducting Nutcracker? That was. I was thrown into the deep end. Um, well, beautifully which, done, because nobody would have ever known <laughs> that was your well, thank first you. time. Yeah. Thank you. It, it was, uh, I, I can, thinking back to all the things I've done, that was probably the single most stressful yet most gratifying artistic experience I've had in my life so far. And I, you wow. know, from, from the conductor's point of view, everybody does the nutcracker. So there's that extra self-consciousness uh, knowing that I still had not yet done the Nutcracker and knowing that everybody has done it, you know, that's from the conductor's point of view because every assistant conductor in the world has done it, you know, a hundred times. Um, but I had not yet done it once. Um, so um, when I knew that I was gonna do that, I did start prepping maybe a good full 10 months ahead of time. Oh, so, so you knew well in advance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to preparing, I hadn't even thought about going down this rabbit hole. This is the, this is cool. But when you start preparing, is it with a score right away? Or do you just familiar, familiarize yourself by listening or a combination of, of both? Uh, it's a combination. I think uh, thinking back to what I did for the Nutcracker, if, um, you know, I already knew 
many of the main numbers. So I wouldn't, I, I'd feel comfortable getting into the score right away. But some of the, you know, lots of act one, some of those big scenes, I, I couldn't have said the last time I'd listened to that all the way through. So I, I just started familiarizing myself with it as a listener before I started getting into the score. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I approached it. Had you conducted a ballet previously? I had done big nutcracker numbers before in Pops concert settings, but nothing continuous like that. Mm -hmm. But no other ballets, no. Correct. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, of course, I'm sitting there in the trumpet section somewhere, and I'm always at the mercy of the stick, right? <laughs> Wherever you guys right. throw the stick, <laughs> I have to chase it. <laughs> um, but the difference, of course, between ballet, well, and I would, in, I would include opera in this as well, is um, you're in control, but not so much. I mean, you have to follow the dancers in ballet and you have to follow the soloists in opera, right? Yeah. So what is, what's a real difference? Am I over romanticizing or not over overstating that? Or is it a, is it a no. deal at all? Yeah, well, I'll fine tune it just a little bit from um, to say that I'm sure every ballet conductor will say differently. I wouldn't consider myself a ballet conductor. So someone like, you know, Jack Everly, who had has a huge experience in ballet conductor, he would probably say it differently. You know, I couldn't talk through the steps that they're doing. Some ballet conductors could, you know, which position they're in or which move they're using. Some of them probably actually do follow move to move. Um, that is not something I did or needed to do. How the conversation starts is um, the artistic director and the dancers, depending on which cast, is they have a set tempo for every number. And, and that's where the first thing starts. And um, when we started doing me showing up to rehearsals just with the dancers, we were just kind of going through the tempos um, and trying to be able to change Group A wants 64, but Group A wants 68. But in the trio, they prefer 70. But in Group A, they prefer slower in the trio or things like that. So, uh, but the, the times I think I would say I was definitely following them is at the beginning of big numbers for step-ons or step-offs. Mm -hmm. And then and then the timing of how they would end the numbers. That's when I was I would say I would actually be following them. But once the number starts, the... Um, they're basically following us, the orchestra, just keeping tempo. Um, so more the begin, the bookends are when I'm following them. Got it. It's an interesting perspective. You know, again, sitting down in the orchestra, we're just, you know, well, and I, I, I'm going to qualify. We're not at the mercy of the conductor, you know, right? Right. Um, but I mean, it's our responsibility to stay get stay together as a band. And uh, yeah. so, uh Getting to this point, I mean, you're a professional conductor at this at this stage. How did you get to this point? I mean, you're so young. I mean, what are you? Are you're probably not even twenty yet, are you? Stop. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in I'm in my mid thirties. Yeah, but you still look very young. But how? Again, how did you get to this point? Um, it took a a lot of time and. Uh, I hate to be the poster child of someone saying, you know, find something you love and stick with it. And, but I feel like that's the path that worked for me. Um, 
so when I was maybe 18, 19 or 20, that's when I first started getting bit by the conductor bug. When I started first noticing myself saying, I think I'd really like to do that. Um, so that's when my mindset started to change. And then when I started grad school at IU, I was still doing trombone performance at the time. That's when I decided to really make a go for it. And um, I had taken some assessments with some professionals in the area and also at IU and bless them, they were all right. Uh, uh, basically everyone said, yeah, you're nowhere close to where you think you are <laughs> or where you need to be to be doing anything in front of people. Like, uh, we believe you, you think this, but it's just, it's not in reality. So I basically had, you know, my trombone path was going this way and I had to start the conducting path behind the scenes mm -hmm. until finally the conducting path could come out into the public sphere. And so basically what that was for me is um, I started taking private lessons and doing private study along, you know, behind the scenes. And then how it works for the conducting profession is, everything you do you have to get on videotape because that's what you have to send to places to just get your foot in the door so it was just a revolving door of my conducting footage and conducting ensemble getting a little bit bigger and a little bit better so it's all these little stepping stone ensembles like uh, the very first thing i did is i got together uh, an ad hoc group at iu i bought them all pizza and that's how i got into my first like summer conducting camp Right. And then I got to that camp, then I got new video, and then it just keeps keeps on going up and over until real stuff starts to happen. So, which would mean that took about, I mean, seven, eight years maybe before I was really getting paid to start conducting. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first gig, the first real gig, as you call it? Yeah, it would have been New World or IYO. That was my first no kidding. First conducting gig. Um, so that was Susan Kitterman, the founder. Um, she and I had been close and she lives in Fortville, as you know. Right. Shout out, shout out to her Sunrise Bakery down the road in Main Street, Fortville. Um, I had been talking to her as I was finishing grad school, telling her what I just told you, what I knew I needed to do, what I thought I wanted to do. So this is what I'm doing. And she said, if you come back and volunteer, um, you know, I'll, we'll try to find some opportunities for you. So that started with doing some sectionals and then covering for her for five minutes to her giving me a full piece. And then it just kept snowballing after that. So that, that would have been the first, first conducting gig, I think. You know, I've conducted a couple of things, uh, big orchestras. Well, I say big, uh, like a 50 piece. And it was for a, a private uh, gig somebody put together, but still standing in front of an orchestra, the wash of sound, right? I don't know if that's how you would describe it, but I remember the first time I dropped the stick, it's like, holy cow, what a feeling, right? Yeah. You know, it's a rush. And even, you know, it's the, the most sublime moments of the music. You're still like, this is incredible. You know, were, were you still, uh, is that when you say you got bit, was that one of those things where you got in front of a group and you felt that rush, that wash of sound or? Yeah, or, uh, so yeah, I would agree that there's a the big wash of sound and it's just, um, 
it's almost like it's too much for your brain to process <laughs> when you first start doing it, which is completely normal. That's how it's supposed to go. Because when once you start to, you know, conducting that profession, like the Jedi would probably say, like, you know, it's at the very end of your life. That's when you figure out you've known nothing the whole time. <laughs> that type of mindset. And so right. what, what, what we say in the conducting profession is, and what we're told as young co conductors is that it takes years and years and years to actually train your brain to actually listen to what is happening in front of you. Mm. For lots of young conductors, um, you know, we, it's good to have a preconceived notion of what you're supposed to hear, but at some point that has to break for what is actually being played and actually processing what's happening mm -hmm. while still conducting at the same time. Like just that skill of listening and assessing in real time uh, takes a long time to develop and still takes time to develop. As far as the actual being, uh, you know, being bitten, I, I think it's cause uh, you know, I play trombone in these orchestras. I, I tried to play all the time. Um, so, I remember playing uh, in the Philharmonic Orchestra of Indianapolis in high school. That's Orsina Smith's, Smith's group. Um, and so as a high schooler, I was sitting back in the trombone section playing, we were doing Mahler one. And as a high schooler doing that, that's a pretty cool opportunity. And I remember yeah. sitting back there and being like, you know, those were the moments where I, I, where my brain started to turn. I was hearing the wash of sound from the trombone section, you know, yeah. just resting and, and listening. That's where it happened, I think. Uh, yeah, Mahler will do it to you, especially, <laughs> especially if you're a brass player, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, yeah, it will. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned New World slash IYO. Let's let's talk a little bit about that because that's a major part of you, right? I mean, not only as a conductor now and director, but uh, as a performer, right? Did, you came up through the yeah. ranks in that group? That's right, yeah. So um, I, I'm gonna start calling it IYO now. Um, mm -hmm. it, well, and I only refer to it as New World because, you know, it, I don't know how recent the transition was, but um, just for reference, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. 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 I'm. I, uh, depending on who I talk to some, like if I'm talking to someone who graduated a few years ago, we'll just instinctively say new world sure. one another. Um, well, when I was in it, it was of course called new world. And I, I did come up through it, um, through high school. So it was that for me, it was the first musical experience of my young life where, um, I knew music was important to me. It was that first spark. Uh, um, it's what gave it to me, um, the whole idea of being passionate about music. So uh, in band, in high school and junior high, I was originally a euphonium player. Um, and just like lots of young people, I'm sure I got turned on to orchestral music from the music of John Williams. Mm. I remember having one of his CDs and just hearing the soundtracks and be like, wow, I wish I could play in an orchestra because they play stuff like that. I knew it was, I found out later it was more complicated than that. Um, <laughs> so I tried to figure out, okay, so how can I play in an orchestra? Then someone had to tell me, well, you know, a euphonium doesn't typically play in an orchestra, so you'd have to switch instruments. So I started learning trombone so that I could play in an orchestra. And 
it was once again, Susan Kitterman who like gave me a chance. I, um, I heard about um, New World at the time. I contacted her and I said, hey, I'm a euphonium player, but I really wanna be in orchestra. So I literally just picked up the trombone a few weeks ago. Can I come play for you on both and just see if you can let me join? And so I did and she said yes. And the very first, I remember the very first concert I did with them, um, I wasn't principal or anything, I was down the line. We did pictures at an exhibition in Bolero. You know, so that was Holy my, cow. That was my first, <laughs> you know, high school trombone concert uh, in a full orchestra setting. And so like, you know, going from a euphonium player playing Sousa marches and then doing that on trombone, that was, that was like going to the mountaintop. And so that pretty much changed it all for me. Not that I don't love Sousa. I actually, I really do like Sousa. A good friend of mine who happens to be the associate conductor of the president's own, uh, Brian Sherlock, uh, we, in an interview, I was talking to him about marches. He goes, you know, some people just kind of blow these off, but they're a big deal. And we have to play them with such precision and the correct yeah. style. You know, not every march is just the same two, four, six, eight thing, you yeah. know. So now that, that's a different animal with the, the Marine Band, right? <laughs> they're yeah. They're going to play it a certain way. But um, so you you said the Philharmonic, Indianapolis Philharmonic, and of course, New World slash IYO. You're you're homegrown. You went to school here. You grew up and went to school here in Indy, right? Right. So I was born in Minnesota and um, then my parents moved me here uh, when I was four. So basically raised here. Um, I went to I went through the Hamilton Southeastern High School system. So I graduated HSC um, my senior year there, I think was the first year the freshman building was built. So it was before Fisher's High School mm -hmm. came off a, a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I had some great directors throughout junior high and high school. And I've told them many times, every time I see them or I'll send them a note, um, Michelle Euler at the junior high, high level um, and then Mike Nemec at the high school level were fantastic. Yeah. I, yeah. I, still, I still remember things they said or did or some of the pieces we played. I, I know both of them and, and I would uh, I'll agree with you. I think they're terrific people and, and terrific educators. Yeah. So good programs over there. Um, okay, so I don't wanna take a quantum leap from performing in New World to where you are now, but what, how long did you stay in uh, Susan's group? And was that until you get to college? I don't know enough about it to know if, if it's just a high school thing and you eventually right. age out. Is that? Yeah, that's how, how it works. Goes. Yeah. Um, you're probably alluding to there, there are some models, especially in Europe, where you can stay in to your early 20s or something. Um, so we do the high school model. You age out after you graduate. So I was in that. Um, I didn't join until my sophomore year. So sophomore, junior, senior year. Mm -hmm. And then I went on my way. Um, so I graduated high school in 2003 and then came back to start volunteering with New World, helping Susan in uh, 2010. So I was basically away from it for seven years and then came back in in, in 2010. And your role currently is? Artistic director. What does that mean? <laughs> So I, I've wondered that myself. <laughs> uh, Susan loves when I 
talk when I have these conversations with her where I've found a new meaning for what that means because the basic meaning is like you're in charge or you pick the music which you know you know it's it's always more complicated than that right um so outside looking in you know wondering what an artistic director does um is completely different once you're in the seat and i would say the thing that i have come to appreciate and realize how important it is, is being a public face of an institution that's so important to so many people. And just being a stable presence of positivity for young people mm -hmm. during and off the podium, uh, it, that's not in the job description, but I found that that's a lot of what the job is. Um, so it's not really a job where you, you, you turn off after you get off the podium. It, it continues on through the week in, in various ways. Um, it makes the job more uh, tiring, but that much more satisfying. Mm -hmm. um, so as a young person, I wish I could say that I had that perspective knowing that that's what Susan was doing. Um, but I don't think I really did. And, and now I have that perspective. So I've, I've, I've let her know. Mm -hmm. that um how big of a deal that is is recruiting part of your responsibility yeah um coming up with a recruitment plan along with our executive director um in the old days we used to go in and visit schools um that sort of changed over time one some of the you know most of the top school programs are so busy it's hard for them to uh, allow you to come in and you know Picture youth orchestra, um, right. so uh, we usually just send send materials and come up with a. Um, we sort of have like a tiered um, strategy of when we send what to whom, based on size and location, and, and instrumentation needs that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so thinking about instrumentation and the number of students involved in in different levels of the IYO. We'll get to the name change or the branding change in just okay. a second. But um, what groups are part of this? You know, I, I think about the Indianapolis Children's Choir, and you know, they start. They've got them from, you know, I think, uh, you know, they out of the crib, right? I mean, they yeah. start so young. Uh, how many groups and what? How do you divide them? Right. So, um, just a brief history. It, it, in 1982, it started with one group at like. 18 people, then um, that grew. And then a second orchestra was added um, in the mid nineties. And then a third orchestra was added in the early two thousands. And so far that's, I, that's what I think our market has, what the market has dictated that that is for now the appropriate size. So we have three orchestras. Um, uh, one's a developmental string orchestra that usually ranges, you know, age uh, fourth grade to eighth grade, Suzuki two and three sort of thing. Um, so that ranges between 30 and 40 people. And then we have an intermediate orchestra above that called the Philharmonic Orchestra that ranges between 60 and 70. And so that has um, full strings and some winds and brass. Um, typical age range for that is sixth grade uh, all up to senior mm -hmm. um, 
and then the top orchestra, the symphony orchestra, that usually settles around 100 people. And then that's kind of the full mega orchestra that has everything. So we have, mm -hmm. you know, we'll have four harps in a random year, things like that. So total membership oscillates between 180 and 220. So really we average around 200 this year, notwithstanding the pandemic is, I mean, we anticipated a, a drop in membership for various reasons and, and that came to pass, but nothing um, detrimental or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the challenges about being an instrumentalist program compared to what you said with ICC is because the uh, winds and brass don't start playing until fifth grade, maybe sixth grade, you know, on demo day. And strings is a little bit earlier, maybe, typically if you do a Suzuki program. So um, we just, uh, we, it's hard for us to get a lot of kids earlier on. Um, you know, we don't have a, an elementary band, like there's an elementary choir type of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you conduct all three groups? or just, the, just, just playing the, repertoire? Just the top. So um, to more specifically answer, what does the artistic director do for this group? I conduct the top orchestra, and then I'm basically I'm in charge of keeping track of all the artistic functions throughout the other two orchestras as well in consort with the specific conductors for that group. Hearing all the auditions and then placing everyone in each ensemble. Um, so the, the two conductors that do the other two orchestras, they have, in my mind, full autonomy and I'm just there in case they want some opinions, but it, you know, um, it, it's a good working relationship with them. Let's think about repertoire a little bit. And since you've been on the podium, what have you programmed and how did you come to the decision to program it? I mean, you have to assess the ability of the group Absolutely. in front of you, right? Or, yeah. or know the or know the the level coming in maybe for the following season as you're planning yeah. um, how do you can you speak to that a little bit yeah so what I've you know how every every town and I don't just mean Indianapolis like if you go to Chicago or if you go to Nashville or whatever it seems like every town has different general strengths and weaknesses of different instrument groups so um, what I found in Indianapolis is the string playing is just strong all the time. It's probably because it's a big city, uh, you know. So we have tons of great, you know, string teachers all over. Um, so while string, you know, the strength of string players will wax and wane as time goes on, there's always the next class of string players coming in. So I usually don't think about um, programming from the string perspective. What usually comes up is, you know, I'll have one year where let's say the trumpets are just like amazing, or we have the best low brass section we've had in a long time, or we now suddenly have two harps when we've had no harps for many, many times. So just to give the most recent example, um, we've had uh, some of the strongest harp playing the last several years that, that I can remember. Um, and one particular individual, she's now studying harp at the Royal Academy in London. She just left us last year. Um, but I've, I've tried to find every major piece for harp um, to do over the last three years, which coincides with typically being a really fantastic piece for the rest of the orchestra. Mm -hmm. So um, Scheherazade, Mavlost, Firebird, um, 
Now, do you feature him like the Hinastera, right? I mean, that's a, but that's a big uh, yeah. solo piece, right? Right. I haven't done that, no. Um, it, they have the opportunity to be featured if they, um, if they audition for our young artist competition, which, mm -hmm. which they're free to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the Britain was something I was considering doing, um, but we, we didn't get a chance to do that. Uh, okay, so something you've programmed that, well, and it, this could be any number of pieces, right? Uh, give me an example of something you've programmed where the kids just, well, they're not kids, they are kids, where they really yeah. rose to the occasion and you're like, wow, <laughs> you know, that was stellar. Yeah, um, I would say our Dvorak 9 performance last year, actually at our name change concert, Mm -hmm. That that was a time, I, I would say most times uh, I find at the high school level, if they're playing it at X during the rehearsal cycle, it always gets to at least two or three X by the concert. You know, they always, whether it's the adrenaline or, you know, this is the last time you're going to play it and you know the mm -hmm. conductor's not going to stop every five seconds, so you're going <laughs> to play differently. Um, it, the concerts typically always hit that extra gear, but this particular concert last year at our actual name change concert, we had been building it up for so long, like trying to tell them the, the purpose and meaning of this concert. It's a really big deal. And, and we brought lots of old, older generations into the concert and Susan was there, you know, they, they probably played it 10 X. It was, it was a special performance for sure. All four movements. Yeah. And okay, so you've got to have a spectacular, is it oboe or English horn? English horn. English horn. Yeah, we did, yes. And yeah. shout out, her name was Emily Osborne. She's a senior in the orchestra and mm -hmm. she's getting a great education at Carmel High School at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, any other pieces that, that come to mind? Uh, earlier in that year, um, Though if if I listen to this after we record, I, I'm I'm now doing what I what I found myself uh, telling Susan Kitterman she was doing is that I'm I'm saying we did certain pieces last year, but it was really like five years ago already. You know? <laughs> uh, I think we did the planets earlier that year, and and that was something they also rose to the occasion, um, like uh, above and beyond what I what I thought was going to happen. You know, I've played with professional orchestras and, and a lot of regional orchestras. And The Planets is not necessarily an easy piece, you know, especially for some regional groups. And I'm trying to imagine putting that piece in front of younger players. I mean, yeah. there's some real challenges. I'm even thinking of it from the trumpet parts. They're not easy. Right. Agreed. They're not. <laughs> I, what, I, I think what it is for the, the younger kids, uh, the cool factor is just, it just overwhelms any sort of sense. I can't do this. I can't play this. And it, it propelled them through the rehearsal cycle. You know, I, I, you know, there are parts that are even for professional orchestras, literally unplayable. And, and so we talk about some of those spots and yeah, I'm, I'm specifically thinking about, if you recall the, the passage of 16th notes at the very end of Mars, um, that the whole orchestra has with a 16th note rest at the beginning and everybody just joins in. I mean, it's just, it's just cacophony before the yet da 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 comes back in led by the trumpet. And, and so, you know, we use those opportunities to talk about, well, let's, what would a professional orchestra be doing in this situation? How would they be approaching it? 
and we talk about you know the art of professional faking from time to time <laughs> how, how to get through something that sometimes a composer just writes at the piano and it can't really come out of an instrument at the same in the same way we never fake it. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm just talking. I'm just talking about the trombones. I think. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm with you. We'll, we'll blame yeah. it on the French horns. Okay. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. So let's go back and let's talk about this change in branding and change in name from New World to uh, Indianapolis Youth Orchestra. How did that come about? Um. It has always been something uh, the institutional memory had talked about going back maybe 20 years or so. And nothing with any sort of urgency. It was always just, well, why not? Or why this? Um, have we thought about this? That sort of thing. Um, so after I took over for Susan in 2015, 2016. It did not cross my mind at that point, or even for the next couple of years. It was sometime in 2018 or 2019. I, I don't remember why. There wasn't some reason. It just, you know, I, I think about the organization a lot because it means a lot to me, and, and that's my job to try to be its steward. And for some reason, it just hit me one day. Like, I, I think we need to seriously consider this, um, thinking about the fact that you know, one day I'm not going to be here either. And we're just going to get that many more generations away from the founding. And I, uh, and I actually wanted the rebranding and name change to, to solidify that link to its originality, as opposed to changing who we were. Um, so uh, a fun story about one of the practical reasons why we changed our name is we are getting, we were getting confused with the Miami group more often as time went on, um, especially as we started to tour. So when I took over in 15, 16, um, something I was passionate about was touring every year or every other year. And my good friends at ICC helped me with this. Henry Leck and Josh Petty and Amy Hoopley and Mary Evers are good friends of mine. So, you know, and that organization is a machine and they know what they're doing. Um, so I always sort of look up to them for some ideas on how to structure IOIO um, in the same way. So I talked to them about touring five, six years ago. Um, you know, this whole concept of you go to a um, international destination year one, then a national destination year two, regional year three, and you just kind of ro rotate. So every year gets caught up in one of those cycles. And so everybody gets to go to Carnegie or everybody gets mm -hmm. to go to Vienna, that, that type of thing. So we went to Carnegie Hall a couple of times. We went to Orchestra Hall in Chicago. Um, and then uh, once we started doing that, I just started noticing people were just asking, oh, are you affiliated with a group in Miami? And that continued to happen. And um, another anecdotal story about that is as new ISO musicians started to join, you know, there's lots of turnover last couple of years coming into now as people move in from out of town and we would ask for coaches um, even then we were getting new ISO musicians saying, oh, are you connect? Is this an affiliate of mm -hmm. the Miami group? So that was becoming an issue. Um, that was one of the reasons. Um, and, you know, I think branding has always been one of our weaknesses and we would internally 
you know, admit that. Uh, it's not like it was a household name. It was more of a niche name. If, if you were an instrumentalist or in the orchestra world, you would know what New World is. Are you a New World? But if you spoke to anyone on the street, they wouldn't know what New World is. And then you'd have to have a whole conversation describing what it was. And eventually you would end up saying, well, it's essentially like the Indianapolis Youth Orchestra. And so that was another reason why is just giving more information in the name itself so that more people could know what it is we're doing. And I think as I became, as each year went by, as I became artistic director, I started to feel more passionate about that because I started to think about it from my perspective as an instrumentalist in the group, thinking like, it, if the city of Indianapolis doesn't even know, I just put on this amazing concert of the planets, like that, that's kind of sad. And I want more people to know about what is happening in these concerts with these young people. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's probably the main reason if you boil down to it, more exposure. Yeah. Well, and a more clear identity. Yeah. Right. No ambiguity to, uh, to anything. Exactly. Um, and, and the only other Indianapolis I think you have to compete with is, uh, well, I can't remember what state it's in, but I can only think of other one. Any, <laughs> I'm gonna edit that out. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I'm thinking about this as an entity and what it provides to uh, so many students over the years, what it has provided to so many students over the years. My own wife, Jenny, you know, uh, yeah. came through and, and her sister came through the, the program and boy, you just see uh, there's a sense of pride to have belonged to that group. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think what I'm getting to right there is, though, uh, it, it's another place for people to feel like they belong. It's like there's that pride with belonging to ICC, you yeah. know, or, or whatever group that Absolutely. you happen to be part of. Um, and of course, how cool is it that in a sense, this is your alma mater. I don't know if you can call that for, you know, it's not an yeah. educational institution, but I mean, to, to come full circle as it were. Yeah. And Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I always say in my parent meeting um, at the beginning of each year is what New World was for me in high school is it's, it's what kept me off the streets of Fishers, you know, and it, and it boils down to what you said. It was, it was that group of belonging for me that meant the, meant the most or it touched a different nerve that other groups couldn't. Because in high school, just like most high schoolers, as I was searching for myself, I had no idea what I wanted or what I didn't want. And um, all of that was sort of beveled out through my musical experiences. I started to learn about who I was and what I loved to do and what I didn't love to do. And um, when Susan founded the organization, um, it was very important to her that this just, just wasn't an orchestra that played music, you know, because it, it's not as if we're trying to go to ISMA every year. That's, that's not our function. It's, it's simply just to play good music. And she was emphatic about the end. Um, this is where young people should come to get nurtured through music. Mm. And so she, she instilled that in us as musicians when I was in the group and I, I fully believe that philosophy and I took that from her and we still talk about it today that, you know, to be a good, uh, you know, this, to be a good orchestral player, even though you're one of how many 50 or a hundred, 
you have to have leadership skills. Like you have to be um, a person in good standing in, in whatever way, you know, you have to show up on time. You have to be empathetic while you play. You have to be polite. You have to be kind. You have to do all these things. And um, using the ensemble as a platform to hopefully inspire young people to be leaders and to have hope for the future, their future and our future society, that's just as important, if not more important, as putting on a great performance of, you know, Mahler One or the planets. Okay, so this this is a good place to uh, to break right here. Um, so this is where now I'm going to ask you uh, a couple of questions. The first one that just came to mind is, you're a trombone player, right? I don't, and I don't know if you're a recovering trombone player. I mean, do you still pick up the horn or, or is, it, I, is it? I do not. Okay. I, I don't own any anymore. Do you, do you ever focus just on the trombones? Are you still really picky about, you know, does your mind or the baton instinctively go towards <laughs> the, the trombones? You're like, I know they're going to miss this. <laughs> I know they're going to be too loud on this. I, you know. I think... I think it's the opposite. Um, I, I have found myself, and I think this is because I'm a trombone player, meaning I'm a non-string player by trade. I, was so, I already came into the game so self-conscious of the fact that I only knew how to speak to trombones and brass players, and I knew nothing about strings. So when I first started getting on the podium, um, I tried to focus on strings only because that's it's not what I knew. Um, and so over time, that has almost developed further. Like I, I am completely out of the trombones way specifically, though when we come to those points where they need more specific instructions, that's when I'll break out the, the trombones and we'll talk about positions and, yeah. and that type of thing. But um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't go towards them. I, you know, I shy away. Right. Well, I mean, you've seen all the memes. It's like never encourage the trombones, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the last thing you need to do. Exactly. So, okay. So thinking back through either your experience uh, as a player in New World or as now the artistic director of IYO, or it could be anywhere else. It, any, any performances that really stand out for maybe less than stellar <laughs> reasons? <laughs> yeah, I'll say I'll, uh, two things are immediately... Uh, coming to mind and they were both with New World. The very first concert Susan Kitterman let me conduct was in 2010 and it was a fanfare for the common man at Hilbert Circle Theater. That was my first thing. Mm -hmm. And I get to the uh, hall, I have the dress rehearsal, everything's good. It's 15 minutes before the show and of course the fanfare starts the concert and I did not bring my tuxedo pants. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the pants at home. And so I am, of course, freaking out. And that is so unlike me because I had already, you know, I played hundreds of concerts as a trombonist and everything's always in my car anyways, and even at that age. And um, luck, as you know, luckily at Hilbert, there's always a set of tuxedo pants somewhere in the men's locker room. So I literally just grabbed somebody's pants hanging um, I think uh, hopefully I told Blake or Becky about it afterwards, but uh, that is, that's the first thing that came to mind. And Susan always reminds me of that when 
she starts to think my I'm getting too big for my own shoes. She'll be like, oh, I remember Adam when he didn't bring pants to his concerts. You know, I have to say that is one of the dreams that I, and I'm sure many other musicians have, is right showing up without pants or without your horn <laughs> or without your music or yeah. you're on the wrong concert, right? You're in the wrong, you're on the wrong. Yeah. People think they know what fear is, but for a musician, that is a fear as if you are dying. One of those scenarios, yeah. because you, you put all, you put all of the dots together. It's like, well, this person's not going to hire me. Uh, so I don't have that <laughs> income. Oh, they're going to hear about it in this other group. So I can't play there. <laughs> right. So, and I'm assuming everything went just fine, right? Fanfare it was, it was fine. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, the second, yeah, the second thing that came to mind was, I'm not going to say what year, year this was. It was a New World concert that I was conducting. Susan was still the artistic director, and I, so I was her assistant conductor, and she let me conduct um, Shostakovich Festive Overture. Um, everything was going fantastic, and then strangely, uh, in the concert, you know, the beginning of the piece opens with the trumpet fanfare. And so randomly out of nowhere, the trumpet section that particular year in the middle of the concert, first thing we did is they played it double time all, all together. And they had not, I, and I, I confirmed with them afterwards because they were literally in tears. They did not choose to do this as some sort of prank on me, which, you know, I'm sure could happen, but they all strangely played it. Yum, ba-da-da-da. And then so already we lost the, the triple meter. And so I, you know, I couldn't go on. I we we couldn't get through the bars in real time to then bring in the rest of the orchestra. So right. we had we had to stop and restart. And Larry, they did it again the second time. So we stopped. They knew it wasn't right, but so we did it again and they played it the same way. So I had to stop. And then I, then I, we actually had to speak to one another in the middle of the concert. So I said, no, 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 it's a half note, you know, with the triplet on beat three, you're playing it too fast. And then it was fine. Um, but now it's a funny story. In the moment it was pure terror. Well, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, pure terror because yeah, we open that with the brass <laughs> fanfare, right? And then it comes back at the end you know, and, and then having to start and restart and restart. I mean, that's already a chop buster. Yeah. And then you add the stress of, oh, crap. And, yep. <laughs> you know, the flop sweat that may have already started. Right. right. <laughs> and, and now, you're, you know, you're shaking uncontrollably. It's like, now how am I supposed to play this? Exactly. So, holy cow, I'm feeling unnerved just thinking about yeah, just that. A, yeah, it was unnerved. <laughs> but then after that, it, it went great. And, yeah. Um, okay, so you know, let's let's wrap up with what your uh, what you're planning, what your vision is for the future of this, and, and, you know, whether it's expansion or whatever it may be. Okay, so um, Susan's dream, and it so happens as my dream is, we'd love for New World IYO eventually to be like a true. Uh, pre-professional arts school like we'd love for Indianapolis to be able to hold that we, I mean we don't know if if, Indi if if Indianapolis has that market but you know maybe 10 20 30 years from now that it could be the case 
Um, and so we've made all these little steps to try to usher that in. So, you know, we have three orchestras and um, now we've added music history and music theory and um, conducting training and chamber ensembles and all these sorts of things. Hopefully eventually one day we could have our own building and then people could start coming during, during the week. Um, that's what we would love to do eventually, a long-term goal. Short-term goal is we want to, along in the spirit of our name change, is we want to try to serve more the community. And not as, as if this is a bad thing, but instead of just playing three concerts throughout the year and then being done, we want to take the momentum from those three concerts and go out into the community. And you can define that in uh, many ways, whether it's outreach to underserved populations or to schools that have no music programs, um, to public performances, just become more infused in the fabric of, of the community. That's, that's probably the, the short-term goal. Great goals. And I love the, the first one that you mentioned. I mean, that's dreaming big, right? But yeah, you have to dream big to get anywhere. Absolutely. And we think there's a way, you know, that someone or some capital campaign one day could raise enough money that we could have our own building. Because one of the things, I mean, the, the biggest uh, um, barrier to that is we don't own our own space, which is not uncommon for youth orchestras. Probably nine out of 10 don't have their, don't own their own space. They're, they're always at the mercy of their renters. Um, so that would be a, a big goal for that. Yeah. Well, I now know more about the group than I ever thought uh, I would know. And, and it's pretty fascinating. And I'm really excited that I'm going to get to talk to Susan about this. You know, she agreed uh, to an interview. So I'm oh, going to get the scoop awesome. on, uh, get the scoop yeah. on how all this came about. So, and, and the same right. thing is going to happen with, uh, I've got both Josh and Henry uh, this uh, is for fantastic. the ICC. You know, and it's nice to, I don't want to call it old guard, new guard kind of thing, but uh, yeah. And, and I love that Susan is still connected uh, to the group. And uh, yeah, and I love that, that I think Sunrise Donuts is going to stay here in Fort Bill <laughs> for, the, for the future, <laughs> the, short, the short time being. So, yeah. um, man, this, this has been very good. A, a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate the time. Uh, you know, you, nobody, nobody hopefully got embarrassed by anything. You didn't throw anybody under the bus. Okay, good. Good, good, good. So, <laughs> um, I'll, I'm going to research what and, and find out what year you're referring to uh, with the festive overture. Oh, I'll tell you. It was no. um, now that I'm thinking, uh, I think it was 2012 or something. Okay, okay. So. I didn't know if you were you were hiding that year just to protect the innocent or whatever. Yeah. No. no, no. So, so are there recordings of all these performances? Lots, lots exist on YouTube. Some of them will probably still be called the New World Youth Orchestra, um, mm -hmm. but we have our own YouTube channel. It's connected to the website, so we usually post, you know, excerpts from every concert. So mm -hmm. the YouTube um, YouTube account will be Indianapolis Youth Orchestra. So a great well, excerpt of that Dvorak 9 performance is up there at the moment. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. And I don't know uh, if that'll be the best audio quality, but I'll, I'll get in touch with you and find out if there, maybe there's a better thing, because I want to be able to include in this, uh, you know, like 
to be able to play festive overture at least the opening fanfare or fanfare right. for the common man or okay. you know even going back to Mahler one and playing what i call the last page you know of Mahler one which is just the the big you know the rush to the end yeah um but uh yeah oh this has been great um anything else you know and you know what if any anything comes to mind afterwards and you let me know uh, okay pop back on and and catch that so well this has been great i yeah I appreciate the opportunity to talk yeah, about you it. bet yeah thank you and i'm i'm glad to see that you're you're healthy to know that you're on the upswing yes here. yeah so. so hopefully i'm immune for however many months they think you're immune so yeah now i'm just you know i'm gonna go out there no mask just kidding yeah, please don't. <laughs> so, all right, man. Well, thank you again and uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Uh, Thanks, you too. Stay safe. All right. I'll be in touch. Yeah. I'll let you know when everything everything comes out. Yeah. Can't wait to see you at the next gig, whatever that is. Yeah, hopefully soon, sooner than, than later. So, yeah. All right, man. Okay. All right. All right. Take care. Bye, Larry. Bye-bye. See ya. Hey, thanks for joining me today for my interview. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more, you can visit patreon.com slash studio HFL. By becoming a supporter, you can have access to content that is exclusively available to my Patreon patrons, which would include excerpts from interviews. I'd also like to remind you to visit Apple Podcast and leave a star rating and a review. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Thanks again for being here and listening. And I hope you come back for another interview next time around.